Lest you be discouraged, we're two-thirds of the way through the, new, through the Bible in this series, even though we haven't got to the New Testament yet. But we're working on it. We're approaching that, that uh, division line soon, and we'll be moving into the New Testament. And I hope you're taking opportunity to read these books as we go along. I'll not ask how many have read the book of Amos tonight, but I will say that uh, you'll have to settle it yourself when you meet Amos in heaven, and it won't be good enough to tell him that you used to listen to him and Andy on the radio many, many years ago. Uh, the book of Amos in the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. This is a, a different book. Its, uh, its message is somewhat different from the rest of the prophets, and uh, it's therefore been a book that has been singled out as unique among the minor prophets. The message of this book, basically, is to declare the impartiality of God, the fact that God plays no favorites. He makes no allowances for uh, anyone that he will not make for others as well. There's no such a thing as being God's fair-haired boy. He doesn't make, uh, give anything more to one than he does to another uh, in accordance with the promises that he makes. And any who are willing to fulfill them will find his blessing poured out upon them regardless of who they are. And any who presume upon them will find him sitting in judgment upon them and his word condemning them no matter who they are. This is the message of Amos. Now, it's hard for us to believe that, isn't it? We are so conditioned uh, to thinking that God reacts the way man does, and that if you get into his favor, you can presume upon his goodness, or you can perhaps hope to get by and will not face the same kind of judgment someone else will, or that you can win special positions, special privileges from God that no one else can have. And you find both extremes of this attitude reflected in, in various groups and individuals that you meet from time to time. And the book of Amos, therefore, is a clear statement that God is not like this at all. Therefore, the message of this book can hit, hit with a uh, like a sudden fist in the face, if you really think that uh, you're uh, in a privileged position, especially with God. It comes with brutal, shocking, breathtaking force. Uh, the tendency in human heart is always to regard ourselves as, as, uh, uh, as favored individuals usually. Or else we turn to the exact reverse and say that we're such poor creatures and such miserable failures that God would never look at us. And we think other people have all the right to God's favor. This tendency, I think, is, is universal among us. We're always uh, saying to ourselves, uh, why should this happen to me when tragedy strikes? Or when someone else is honored, we say, why shouldn't it happen to me? <laughs> this is common. I can't help but re, uh, think of the story that uh, Don Mumaw shared with many at the Mount Hermon banquet the other night that illustrates this tendency in human nature so strongly. Many of you were not there, and uh, you might uh, enjoy it. It was the story of a man who it was in New York City at the t uh, 
and it happened to be during the time of the subway rush in the evening, on a hot summer's evening, and uh, people were jamming into the subway cars, and they were moving out of the station, and each car was loaded to the full. And one man happened to be the last man to just push his way, jam his way inside of a car, and back in, and he stood facing the door, the doors closed, and the car moved off. And he stood there, packed up against this door, pressed up against it with the awful push of humanity in the car. And as it went down the uh, down the tracks, waving and swaying, as they do, he began to feel a little sick. And the further he went, the sicker he got. And just at the critical moment, the car came into a subway station, and the door opened, and he got sick all over the man standing on the platform right opposite him. But without anybody moving, the door suddenly closed, and the car moved out of the station. And the man stood there, looking at himself. And then he shrugged his shoulder, and he said, Why me? Now, when the prophet Amos came to the northern kingdom of Israel, this was exactly the reaction that he got. For the people of that city looked upon him as though he had just vomited over them. Uh, they, they, they resisted his message. They were disgusted with it. And their attitude was exactly that. Why us? Why not go someplace else? You can see this reflected in the biographical uh, sketches that are given to us in this book. The book opens with these words, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds, or the herdsmen, of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That definitely dates this book and uh, the prophet Amos as being a contemporary with the prophet Hosea and also of Isaiah in the southern kingdom, one of the earliest of the prophetic writers. But the thing that marked this man was that he was not a trained prophet. He was a layman. And even, as some have suggested, since he calls himself a herdman, and, uh, or as it's translated here, a shepherd, really a, a, a cattle man, he was the first of a long line of cowboy preachers. I don't know whether that marked him in, as disfavorable in the eyes of the people, but at least his message was not acceptable to them. And in chapter 7, he adds another personal note. We get the reaction to his message as he came to this northern kingdom. In verse 10, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. That was the burden of the prophet's message. God was going to, uh, to exile Israel. God was going to judge the nation and the king. And Amos, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there, and prophesy there. Don't come to us. 
Go back to your hometown. Go back to the country you came from and prophesy down there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it's a temple of the kingdom. And sturdy, rugged Amos, with his country background and his bluntness, said, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son. That means I have not been to the school of the prophets. I'm not a son of the prophets. In that sense, he didn't mean his father was not a prophet. He meant, I haven't been to the accepted school of the prophets. But I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees, a farmer. And the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now you can see something of the opposition to the message of this man as he came uh, declaring the burden of the Lord in the land of Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel. They found his message very hard to accept. But uh, he went about delivering it in a very interesting way, in a very systematic way. If you had a map of Israel and could locate the countries that are mentioned in the early prophecies of this book, you would find, if you put Israel right in the center of the map, that Amos is going right around the country of Israel and delivering a message concerning all those neighboring nations that bounded the land of Israel. He begins first in verse 3 of chapter 1 with Damascus. That's way up to the north, in the northeast section uh, above Israel. And he, de- he delivers a message of the Lord to Damascus, showing Israel how God had judged Damascus especially for their cruelty. Then he moves way down around to the west and down on the west coast to the ancient land of Philistia, or what is called here Gaza, the land of Gaza. And once again, he reminds Israel that God had judged this land. Why? Because they indulged in slavery and they sold the people uh, and... uh, uh, and and participated in an active slave trade. Then he moves back up the coast again to Tyre and Sidon, or Tyre, the land of Tyre, uh, again on the northwest side of Israel. And here he points out how God had judged this country because they had broken their truce. They had broken their agreements. And then he moves on down around to the east and down way to the far south of Israel, to the land of Edom, the ancient country of Esau. And here he points out how God's judgment had fallen upon this nation because of their unforgiving spirit, their implacable hatred of Israel, their unforgiving attitude. And then he moves back up the the east side of Israel to the land of Ammon. And by the way, Ammon is now the country of Jordan. And its capital is the capital of ancient Ammon. And here he points out that God again had judged this section of the country because of their cupidity, their greed, their hunger for land of others. And then north again to Moab on the northeast side of Israel. And he, God had judged Moab, he says, because of their hatred uh, against Israel. And then he comes to the southern kingdom, Judah itself, and in a very brief reference points out that Judah had despised God's law, therefore the judgment of God had fallen on it, 
And at last he arrives right at the target, at Israel, the nation, the ten uh, kingdom northern nation of Israel. And here he announces that God is going to judge them for corruption and for injustice in their hearts. Now, as you read the account, you can see that the people of Israel were quite untroubled as long as he was talking about the other nations. They took this in a very complacent spirit, more or less with the attitude, well, they've got what's coming to them. But when the target, when the prophet moved home to zero in on Israel, they got angry. And they said, why don't you go away and preach someplace else? This has almost inevitably been the result of preachers who have been faithful to the message of God. But the rest of the book now zeroes in on this uh, northern kingdom of Israel. And beginning with chapter 3, you have the prophet's words of God addressed to this nation. And he begins by pointing out to them that they were a people who had a special privileged position before God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And they're waiting now for his message. And he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's what they wanted to hear. Why, this was the sign they were the privileged people of God, the chosen people. They were the ones whom God himself said he had known only them of all the families of the earth. And you can see them swelling in pride and arrogance, as the prophet says it. Ah, but then comes the fist in the face, the hammer blow. Therefore, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now see their faces fall. You see, that which was especially the mark of their pride was the very reason, God says, they were peculiarly subject to judgment. Light creates responsibility. Privilege exposes to the keenest of judgment. And as these people had been called into such a close relationship, they were also, therefore, subject to the severest and the sternest forms of judgment. Now, this is what Peter means in, his, in the New Testament when he says, The time is come when judgment must begin at the house of God. It always begins there. God always starts with his people. And then he moves out to, the, to the, those around about. And the prophet's word is, because we're, we, we're people of God, does not mean that God's word does not sit in judgment upon that which is wrong in our lives. It's all the more apt to be born home to us. Then he points out how close this relationship was. In chapter 3 again, verse 3, he says, Do two walk together unless they've made an appointment? Or as it's usually rendered, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Here's God's walk with his people. And then his talk with them, down in verse 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. These were the things that marked their peculiar relationship of privilege before God. They walked with God. They talked with God. But for this reason, the prophet says, 
God is going to send judgment. And then he announces what it is. Because of the false gods that they worshipped at Bethel, you remember the story of the two golden calves that that uh, uh, were erected by King Jeroboam in the city of Bethel. And Israel was sent to worship there. And they called those calves Jehovah. And they worshipped and bowed down before these golden images. Now, those two calves represented two basic ideas in Israel. Uh, for which God was perennially in judgment against the people. And they're ideas that are prevalent among people today. Those golden calves represented, first, in the fact they were made of gold, the hunger of this people for material gain, the love of wealth, materialism, the God of gold. And second, because they were calves or young bullocks, They were representative of the pagan gods of sex, the fertility gods of the nations around about them. They worshipped the bull as a sign of fertility or sex, sexual potency. So that the worship of these twin calves made of gold was essentially a symbolizing of the basic worship of the people for materialism and sex. That sounds awfully modern, doesn't it? That brings us right to California in 1966, in the year of our Lord. And the prophet's word to this people was that because of this kind of worship, the nation of Assyria was being roused up of God to come sweeping down from the north and carry this people away to captivity. Now, in the patience of God, it was almost 200 years before that took place. Yet God was announcing it this early in order that the people might have space to repent and uh, declaring that this was certain to come unless they turned. And uh, even in this account, the prophet shows how God had patiently tried to awaken them. In chapter 4, verse 6 through verse uh, 11, you have five different times, the prophet says, when God had sent something to wake them up, to make them think, to jar them and arrest them and stop them in their downward course and shake them up and make them think. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread, that is famine, in all your places, yet you did not return to me. And I withheld the rain from you, and I sent rain on one city and not on another, deliberately spacing it so there'd be an awareness that this was a divine hand, and yet he said, you did not return to me. I smote you with blight and mildew and laid waste your gardens, but you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt, slew your young men with the sword, carried away your horses, but you did not return to me. Overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, that is, by perhaps volcanic action, burning and so on. Yet you did not return to me, he says. Again and again, you see. Which indicates that God oftentimes sends things into our life to shake us up, to awaken us. I've seen this happen so many times. Visiting someone in the hospital who's gone through some accident. And I've often found that even though uh, nothing directly 
would indicate that this was perhaps a, a judgment of God, it was taken by the individual, and rightly so, as a warning, a shaking up. Uh, God saying to them, look now, stop and think about where you're going and what's happening to you. For God, in great patience, is, is constantly trying to make us see things the way they really are. And then as the prophet moves on, he puts his finger upon the very thing that's wrong. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, because you trample upon the poor, and you take from him exactions of wheat, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. Now, this is the reason why this book is so loved of the liberal, because this Amos is called the prophet of social justice, the man who demanded that people treat their fellow man rightly. And uh, uh, liberals love this book because of these thundering pronouncements against the social evils of Amos's day, and rightly so. God is always disturbed by social injustice. But what the liberals seem to miss in this book so many times is, is Amos's appeal to these people. He doesn't just say to them, now stop doing these things. He does say that, but that isn't all he says. It's how to stop doing these things that's the important message of this book. And you'll find it plainly given twice in chapter 5, in verse 4 and in verse 6. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to those golden calves. Seek me and live. And again in verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. What's the answer, you see, to a wandering heart? Well, it isn't just to clean up your life. It's to come back to God. It's to repent, think again, turn, come back to the Lord of your salvation. Call upon him, ask him to set you back on your feet and straighten out your life. That's the answer. That's always God's appeal. And to come back into a relationship to the one who who loves and in patience tries to awaken us and bring us back to himself. Now, uh, these the nation evidently went on resisting the, the appeal of uh, the prophet, and uh, he addresses two particular messages to these people, uh, representing, uh, addressing it to the two extreme views among the people of Israel. Um, they are almost contradictory views. One is chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, he says. And then in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Now here are two uh, quite distinct views among the people. There were those whom we might call the pious hypocrites who first came under the judgment of God. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. What does this mean? Well, you see, there were some people who were going about saying, Oh, isn't this a terrible day? Oh, God is so hard. 
things are so terrible, wringing their hands and appearing to be mourning and, and concerned and going through all kinds of rituals and religious ceremonies and yet living exactly the same way as they were and saying, oh, there's no hope for anything, only if God comes at last. Oh, would that the day of the Lord would come. Would that we could go to home to be in heaven. You ever hear this? And the prophet thunders, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why, he said, do you know what that day will be like? Do you have any idea what you're saying? Why, he said, it's darkness, not light. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into the house in a panic and leaned his hand against the wall and a snake bit him. You're talking about the day of the Lord. Why, you don't know what you're talking about, he said. Woe to you. And God says, I despise your feasts, and you take no delight in your religious activities. All these solemn assemblies and burnt offerings and all this. Away with them, God says. Take the, away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like the waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do we ever get away from this? He desireth truth in the inward parts, in the center of life, not outward conformity. God sees through that sham and pretense uh, without the slightest difficulty at all. And, And it doesn't impress him when we go through religious activities. I desire truth in the inward parts. Well, then there was another group that said, well, we're not concerned about these things. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's have as good a time as we can and make the most of life and enjoy it to the full if we can. And uh, the prophet says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. How can you be restful when the nation is so restless? How can you content yourself with, with riches and wealth and the good things of life when people are are lying in distress outside in the streets and judgment is taken away from your courts. And so there comes this powerful message, Woe to those who lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves in the midst of the stall and who sing songs and while away the time in the midst of the threatening judgment of God. Two extreme groups. And then as he goes on, he shows that the nation is rapidly ripening for judgment in a series of visions that were given to him. And at last there comes the final scene, which is is always the case in almost all the prophets, is a scene of beauty and of peace and of glory. It reveals what God wants and therefore why God is angry at hypocrisy. Listen to these words. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Remember where that's quoted in the New Testament? In that first council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, when they were wondering as to whether God was going to save the Gentiles without the law of Moses, and James stood up and quoted this verse from Amos. 
the prophets, he said, have declared that God's going to send his grace out to the Gentiles. And he quoted this verse. And uh, uh, God's word was that he will raise up the, the tabernacle or the booth of David that's fallen and repair its branches. That's a picture of the coming of Christ who came as the branch of the house of David. And in the raising up of the Lord Jesus, the word was to go out to all the peoples. God would bless the world through him, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations, all the Gentiles, is the word, who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this. And then comes this beautiful scene. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet rain, wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land. And they shall never again be plucked up. Out of the land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's a picture, of course, of the millennial days, when Israel at last shall be restored to the land, never to be removed again. Now, why is God then so angry with his people? Well, it's because of what he's aiming for, see, in human history. If cruelty makes him angry, it's because his heart is so set upon kindness toward men. If oppression stirs his wrath, it's because he wants men to live in love and peace. If uh, uh, pain inflicted upon others brings judgment from God, it's because his heart is set on happiness and the well-being of humanity. Now, the message of this book then is that God is relentless when he begins to deal with man. He will not make peace. He will not, he will not compromise. When he begins to deal with a nation, he insists on absolute values. When he begins to deal with an individual, he deals with absolute values. Just the fact that we are Christians does not mean we escape the condemnation of the judgment of the Word of God in those areas where we are attempting to compromise. Just because we've been Christians for 40 years doesn't change the relentlessness of the, of the word of God as it searches and probes our hearts and lives. God doesn't change. And uh, the word then of this prophet is, we're dealing with a God of righteousness and of unbending, inflexible zeal who will not compromise in any way. And yet a God of patience and of love. And the marvelous undertone of this book is in through all the prophets is that of the outpouring of the love of God's heart, moving toward the well-being and the happiness of humanity, breaking out every now and then in beautiful forms of expression, undergirding the whole of the book, and promising to bring Israel at last, and likewise all the people of God, into the day when man shall live at peace, and joy and blessing shall fill the hearts of men everywhere. Oh, what a message this is. A book of the, of the impartiality of God's grace. Shall we bow together now in prayer? Father, we thank you for this look at thyself again and the fact that thou art a God who changes not. 
absolutely without shadow of turning. When we deal with thee, Lord, we deal with one who's faithful to us. What, uh, what joy this gives us as we find in our own hearts a hunger to be made pure, to be made right before thee, to stop at nothing that we might be what you want us to be. And yet, Lord, how this strikes terror also into our hearts in those moments when we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to, to uh, water down the truth, to kid ourselves, to deceive ourselves, to think that perhaps we can get by just this once, and thou wilt not notice. Lord, teach us that thine eye is ever upon us, not merely to search us out as a policeman, not merely to haunt us and hound us, but to bless us and to remove from us that which harms us and hurts us and to heal us and restore us in grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.